Hello, friends. As always, it is a sincere honor and a pleasure to have you here with me on The Tully Show. We will get the official proceedings underway imminently. But first things first, let me remind you, usually the original totally outshines the sequel, but once in a blue moon, a sequel comes along that more than upholds the high standards of its predecessor. The Empire Strikes Back. Cool Ranch Doritos. Mark Wahlberg. Actually, he was quite a bit better than Donnie. You get my point. To that illustrious list, I would humbly add The Deuce, my other pod with Jessie Mae Peluso. You enjoyed hearing her so much here on The Tully Show. We made it a regular thing, not once, but twice every stinking week. Hear me and the people's champ wherever you pod wherever you are listening to this you can find that go listen subscribe rate review you know the deal every tuesday and friday i will see you there but first things first enjoy this uh, thought-provoking conversation with robert gale which begins now Coming to you live, on tape, from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City-adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today from Toronto, a research chair, a Fulbright scholar, and most importantly for our present purposes, along with his colleague Sean Lawson, co-author of a fascinating and timely book entitled Social Engineering, How Crowdmasters, Freaks, Hacker, and Trolls Created a New Form of Manipulative Communication. Hello and welcome, Robert Gale. Hey. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Terrific. Thank you for being here with me. I feel like I know I reached out to you because I saw an excerpt of uh, your and your co-authors uh, book, which is really just a, a tiny little it's like if you took one slice of cheese out of Swiss cheese, one of the holes, it's really just one small piece of the whole thing. And that's why I reached out to you. Really just the tip of the iceberg of basically there are a lot of subjects that I'm curious about that I'm shamefully ignorant about that I feel like you know lots of things about. So we're going to talk about the book, but I was hoping we could just hopscotch through a couple of other things that I know are also areas of professional interest for you um, before we get to the book and along the way. Case in point, I looked at your website. I love your website. The layout. Oh, thanks. Beautiful. <laughs> um, I saw that you are currently looking for your professor. You're looking for grad students who want to study, help you study alternative social media and internet cultures. Yes. And my first question is, what is an alternative social media? Oh, um, well, and think about I know, it. I know it's not an easy answer. Oh, no. Um it somewhat is an easy answer because there's been this long tradition of people since about 2008 who looked at Facebook. You think about Facebook emerging at that time and MySpace was still a thing and then Twitter was kind of on the horizon. And they looked at that and said, you know, we don't like these systems because they're really predicated on gathering all our personal information and selling our data to marketers and you know showing ads alongside of what we do. So there are people criticizing these systems for what we now call surveillance capitalism. But this is 
you know, 2008, 2009, 2010. So people started developing alternatives to them. They were more community run systems that you and I could run them. And in fact, I have run my own um, version of these systems. So they're free and open source software. And the basic idea is, you know, I set it up on a server and let's say you might join my server and we do social media stuff there, but my server connects to another and connects to another and connects to another. And pretty soon you get this big network of all these little servers. And that's actually taken off in the past year thanks in large part to Elon Musk buying Twitter. A lot of people have moved to systems like Mastodon uh, or Blue Sky, which is also talking about doing this alternative federated system. So yeah, it's a really exciting emerging area. That's why I'm looking for grad students because um, these are community-driven social media systems. It's very different than what we're used to with Meta, you know, Facebook and Instagram or, or Twitter. Now, I understand everything has to start somewhere, but initially it seemed, you know, we had Friendster, begat MySpace, begat Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And then it just stopped and it seemed like it was, people ran out of um, permutations of, you know, this is, it's Twitter, but with pictures. And at a certain point it was like, oh, it's really just this or just that. I assumed, and I looked forward to this never-ending unfurling of new and improved social media and instead we've kind of stopped there i've people have been critical of the the behemoths in the field for pretty much as long as they've existed and yet like i signed up for blue sky i, I don't i don't even i probably have my login somewhere mm-hmm. not speaking with your your mind not your heart how optimistic are you that say three years from now we may be talking about one or five competing social media that are more than like play a bigger role than say like the green party plays in american politics yeah well it's uh, one answer is that despite all the problems that we've seen with facebook or twitter people stick to them or go back to them. So um, when Musk bought Twitter back a year ago, a lot of reporters reached out to me to talk and they said, well, you know, is Mastodon going to kill off Twitter? And I said, you know, I'd love to see that, but I don't think it's going to happen. Because if we look back at the history of corporate social media, Facebook with its emotional contagion study or Cambridge Analytica, which is one of the major uh, uh, focus points of this book, um, people just go back to them because that's where their friends are or that's where their audience is. You know, if you're a content creator, you're looking for a big audience. So in a few years, do we have something like a Blue Sky network and a Mastodon network and Twitter still hanging on, you know, if it doesn't run into the ground? And it's, it's hard to see it not running into the ground. I actually do think that we could have that kind of fragmented uh scenario you could have a situation where people who are doing microblogging for influence purposes they're sticking to meta's threads and you have people who are interested in the political and journalist vibes of twitter old twitter sticking to blue sky and then people are interested in running their own social media systems and kind of having that community control sticking with uh, the fediverse and mastodon so i think that outcome is actually pretty likely that we get this very fragmented space. And I say that because there have been these alternative systems as long as there's been the mainstream corporate social media. I 
look at our current social media landscape, and I am a guy who doesn't know what I'm talking about, but I see monopolies. You know, I yeah. see that there are, you can't play the game of um, politics, for example. Both of the parties have big, big problems with these, but ultimately it's like, as you say, that's where their friends are, that's where the audience is, so they just kind of take turns complaining about it when it's their turn to be in the barrel. As I understand monopoly law, um, once a company gets to a point where it is no longer, you know, legitimately plausible for an up-and-coming competitor to even enter the marketplace and get a foothold, we say, congratulations, you won the game of capitalism. Here's a bunch of money. Now we're blowing you up. My dad worked for the phone company when that happened um, back in the day. Amazon seemingly is getting to that point in terms of retail mm -hmm. sales. But to me, there's no question. I, I work with people all the time, people, uh, adult performers and stuff like who complain about all the things with, with Instagram. And I go, well, how is, how has nobody just been able to launch something that even if it was 20% as big, but, but they were just like, this isn't for kids. Don't worry about it. Ha have at it. And yet so many people have tried and failed. It leads me to believe that it kind of cannot happen. Is there more talk? of dealing with the major social medias as monopolies and therefore splitting them up than I'm aware of? Because I don't hear that dial. Everybody complains, but to me, that's the obvious lever tool that's at the disposal of the government should they choose to use it. And I don't even hear the conversation about whether or not they should or might. Well, yeah. So states around the world are looking at these big companies and asking them to either uh, adhere to new regulations or to break them up. And so in the U.S., the Federal Trade Commission, I do believe, has uh, uh, taken on Google as a monopoly in the search and advertising space. Um, so that's a key example. And like these these cases are huge, obviously, and they're very complex uh, and governments don't take them on lightly. Um as for social media itself, uh, I've placed less faith in states breaking up these companies and more faith in people making those alternatives. So in the case of Instagram, for example, there is a federated alternative called PixelFed that's very image focused. Um, when I got to ask a clarifying question, though, you say adults, do you mean like adult performers? Yeah, no, I, I actually do mean that. On one of my other shows, there's somebody who does work as an adult performer and we have guests from from that sphere and everybody's always complaining about you know the the, the typical complaint which is a valid complaint and it's just an extension of a long-standing thing at least in american culture you can find decapitations but you can't somebody you can't see their underwear hanging exactly. out and i and i always 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 beca because when i talk to people they implicitly accept that they're monopolies. I say, well, you have to understand that's not censorship. That's not free speech. That's a company that has decided. I am somebody who makes content on YouTube, which has been demonetized for touching on this or that third rail. I'm also the parent of an 11-year-old and a 5-year-old. And I say, if I if I was Jack YouTube, I would be making the same decisions. All right. the money, most of the money is not even having the dark alley the kid might accidentally go down. So I absolutely understand whether or not I even agree with it. I also agree with it, but whether or not I, I, I understand why YouTube, Instagram, Twitter are run the way that they are run. It just seems that in a healthy social media environment, if you want this, you go to this one. If you want that, you go to that one. Sometimes I buy the organic chicken. Sometimes I buy yeah. the cheap stuff. And yet we have monopolies. Yeah. 
again, that, that power of those uh, network effects pulling people in, you know, wanting everyone to be on this one big thing. And so um, this isn't exactly related to a sex work or adult performance, um, but the lamentation that I've seen from people who are really stressed out about Elon Musk buying Twitter is very much based on like, Twitter was where my audience was. I had 50,000 followers or whatever number. Um, I can't walk away from that. And yet here's this guy who's bought this and he's got control over a major channel of communication and is, you know, really just running it into the ground and spreading anti-Semitic content and all sorts of awful stuff. What am I to do if I'm a creator or I'm a writer, I'm trying to share with an audience or, you know, if you join a system like Tumblr and you're, uh, engaging in adult, uh, content, uh, Tumblr bans adult content at one point, and then where do you go? You lose that channel or you mention changes in YouTube that result in people not being able to monetize their content. Uh, yeah, that's basically what I've been trying to study for the past, you know, 15 years is what do we do if we disagree with these systems for whatever reason, where do we go? Uh, you know, one answer is to quit altogether. I don't think that's a very viable answer. Another is to try to run our own systems and have these uh, systems under our control. Uh, along the, the point of uh, sex workers, um, there was for a period of time a alternative uh, Mastodon instance called Switter that was a sex worker-centric um, uh, instance. And it was regulated essentially out of existence. Like they found that the regulatory burden of, you know, dealing with state regulations was too much for them to handle on their own. Um, so it's a complicated uh, realm of the world. And I, I agree with you. I think fundamentally having each of us go to our own like niches makes a great deal of sense to me. But at the same time, people want to connect from their niche to, you know, we're not just one facet of our lives. We, you know, I'm not just a sports fan. I'm a interested in politics. So I want to connect to people who are interested in politics or what have, what have you. And that's why I find uh, the Fediverse, which is a thing I'm writing a book about, uh, to be fascinating because they're, you know, I could set up my own social media instance, a bunch of my friends could join, and then we can connect from that one to another and so on and build this big network. We can focus on our own particular niche, but also still communicate with a a global network of people. Uh, I find that to be a really fascinating system. Yeah, because we want a Goldilocks thing. You know, I'd compare it to, uh, say, where the music industry is nowadays, yeah. where nobody wants a world where there's one, you could only have FM radio and it only has three stations. And so you, you better be buddies with the person who runs the place or play the kind of music that they like, which is kind of where we are right now. But the alternatives currently feels a lot more like the streaming services where it's like, how are we supposed to communally, human beings are wired to communally celebrate this stuff. But you, you, I can tell you're a musician, you probably know some amazing band that I've never heard of and vice right. versa. And that's, 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 so we're looking for the Goldilocks um, solution there. I mean, I'm encouraged that you're encouraged, um, not just, I guess, uh, in theory, but in practice about the emerging alternatives to that. We'll kind of get back into that as we go here. I noticed you're also, um, you, I think you wrote a book about the, the dark web. Yeah. For most of us, the phrase conjures images of snuff films and cutting edge Russian narcotics. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I've ever had the pleasure of visiting the dark web. I get most of my information from scaremongering articles in Newsweek. So <laughs> What was it like 15 years ago? What's it like now? And is there any difference between the two? What, 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 what do people, what do guys like me not get about the dark web? Well, 
the the exist the, the production of the dark web back in the late 1990s early 2000s um was animated by some of the same concerns we're talking about now um you know we we're building this big massive surveillance infrastructure corporations and governments know a great deal about us they can use uh that to shape what we see so we want to build a system where uh, is a free speech absolutist system, a system where you can speak anonymously and read things anonymously. So back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, people were building systems like the um, Tor system, which is probably the most popular of a lot, but there's also one called the Invisible Internet Project or I2P, which every time I say the acronym, I have to stifle a giggle. Uh, and then there's Freenet. <laughs> Yeah. And, um, but basically these systems are very complicated encrypted systems that allow for you, anyone who uses them to read anonymously. So you go to a site, you can read it and they have no idea who you are. And it's very, very difficult to track you and also to publish anonymously. So you could host a hidden service, publish whatever, whatever you wish. And it's very, very difficult for you to be tracked down unless you let slip information about yourself. The justification for all that is, you know, anonymous speech is political speech. You can look back through history like anonymous publications during the American Revolution. Um, the concern of that about that, of course, from law enforcement is this is where the crooks are going to hide. So you get these two competing visions like this is a valuable space for political speech. This is a space where criminals are going to do criminal stuff. Robert, fact, let me just uh, ask ahead. you to pause for a quick second there. Now, every time I go to a website and they ask if they can collect my personal information, I, I always say no. Are you telling right. me I'm still not safe? Well, when you go to a website, at the very least, your IP address is sure. exposed to them. Right? No, I'm so joking. I, I assume everybody's collecting everything. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, we're seeing the, you know, the. European regulations crop up all around the world for those reasons, because you want to do business in Europe, you have to say, I'm collecting data. But yeah, yeah, when we go to these websites, a great deal of information is collected about us. Um, that fear from the early dark web creators has really come to pass, I think, to their credit. Um, the fear of law enforcement has also come to pass because a predominant use for the dark web has been to share stolen personal information, also child exploitation images. Uh, between those two, you see things like people experimenting with their own social media systems that are not, you know, they're the anti-Facebook, if you will. They're, you know, you use pseudonyms and there's no collection of personal information. And I've seen in that space some really amazing experiments with being civil online and debating political issues, but behind veils of anonymity. So that can be done, too. So the conclusion of that book that you're talking about, which is called Weaving the Dark Web, I argue that, you know, the dark web is going to be what we end up using it for. If we think it's going to be used for selling personal information or selling drugs, that's basically what it's going to be for. Um, if we believe in the system as a political space for anonymized political speech, we need to use it in that way. And there was a brief moment where it looked like it could tip in that latter way because the New York Times actually set up their own dark web version. Facebook actually set up uh, an onion site. This is back in 2016, but largely I think those projects have faded. Like people have not really invested the time into that. And now it's, um, it's predominantly as you described, you know, it's really the place to go if you want to find stolen personal information, for example. 
So let's talk about um, the most recent book, Social Engineering. Um, uh, you said elsewhere, I think, in an interview uh, to just sort of get in capsule form across the, you know, the purpose, uh, what we're doing in this book, this is you speaking is connecting contemporary cybersecurity to old school, early 20th century propaganda. So let's talk through the second part first and lead up to, we'll talk about the sure. past and we'll get to the present. Um, can you talk about the, um, the, uh, social engineering from its infancy? I know it's obviously, it's a book length subject to put it mildly. Um, the purposes, the tools of, um, self-declared social engineers, and particularly, you know, if you can point out just how actually hands-on and active, it wasn't some people sitting in an ivory tower writing books. This was a hands-on oh, yeah. project with massive manpower throughout the bulk of the 20th century. Yeah. If we go back to the late 19th century, early 20th century, we see the emergence of new social sciences. So sociology, psychology, and economics kind of sheds uh, uh, the political side and says we're a pure science. Um, alongside that, you see the rise of civil engineering, and this is applied science. So we know we have good knowledge of physics, and we can use that to shape the landscapes around us, right? So this vision of engineering becomes a very powerful, I'll call it a metaphor. People thought of it less metaphorically, but the idea is we can take science and use it to shape nature. So we can take social science and use it to shape social nature. We can shape human nature. We can socially engineer. And there were different threads of that in the early 20th century. One was the social reformer movement. So you see social gospel Christians. We see um, social reformers who are really concerned about masses of immigrants coming into America, wanting to Americanize them. Uh, we see people doing studies on cities and neighborhoods and trying to fight poverty and, and other noble goals. And their idea was gather information, use our new social scientific tools, shape society. We also see it in the workplace. There was this vision of scientific management, the, the vision of Frederick Taylor, uh, the one best way to do things. Basically, what was happening there is at the organizational level, uh, people were filming workers, you know, seeing how they shoveled coal or, or operated a drill press or what have you. And they studied their motions and said, here's the one best way to do that. So there's this idea that taking the work, the choices about work away from the worker and turning it into a managerial uh, object and using that scientific knowledge to shape and engineer the workforce. But for Sean and I, the, the most potent and powerful people in this, this batch are early 20th century propagandists who said, we can take these new social sciences, we can take new emerging forms of mass media, radio, newspaper, and so on, and we can shape the consciousness of a very nation. So you go back to people like Ivy Lee, Doris Fleischmann, uh, Edward Bernays, and these are the, the founding figures of the field of public relations. And they all literally said, our job is to engineer consent. Our job is to engineer society, to shape it on behalf of, you know, they, they, they would dress it up in democratic language, you know, shape it on the beha behalf of the democratically elected elite leaders or industrial captains. But in any case, it was shaping society, shaping attitudes, increasing consumerism or increasing, um, I, I suppose, increasing uh, voting or support for a war uh, on a mass scale. And 
as we write in the book, uh, if anyone in the audience is getting like kind of sick to their stomach when they hear this, like, like we, I think we hear about that today and we reject it out of hand. Like the idea that society should be shaped at a mass level mm -hmm. seems like a really bad idea to us. And it was uh, vilified by the 1970s. Okay. I, I'm ready to be the, the, the turd in the punch bowl here. Let, let, let's, let, let's, let's go through that kind of piece by piece. Um, here in LA, for example, to the present day, there's still billboards. Hey, your kids are going to tell you they yeah. want popsicles for dinner. Make them eat carrots. Yeah. I question the efficacy of those billboards, but that's flat out social engineering. Um, my, uh, my sister is a teacher and she says, you know, very often we get criticized for, you know, overreach doing the roles of parents. She's like my experience and just one person's anecdotal experience is even throughout her now several decade long career. Things that we used to assume parents would be imparting at home aren't always happening. And in mm -hmm. the absence of that, it I don't want to parent your child. Essentially, <laughs> I have to because in certain instances for certain children, it's not it's not happening. I believe that the idea of this is repugnant to the modern sensibility. It is in practice, sort of like communism, pretty much always uh, uh, an amount of overreach is guaranteed to happen. The zealots are going to end up running the system and, and making it a caricature cartoon of what it was intended to be. But I personally, think of me what you will, I think we all at our at our core accept a certain amount of social engineering that it goes on and that it's um it, it's it, it might well be necessary is that a crazy thing to say oh i that's very much tied to the vision of the early 20th century social en engineers particularly the social reformers they were self-labeled progressives they use that label like that's this is the progressive period of american history mm -hmm. and the idea was you know we can have um, ideas about nutrition and ideas about education and ideas about um, critical thinking that we can impart to people through various institutions. And, you know, let's look at our history. We have a public education system, which its mission is to impart critical thinking among children and teach them, you know, how to be citizens. That's what the ideal is. Mm -hmm. So those institutions are very tied to that vision that we can do these things and then we get into, you know, systems like we should have national standards for mathematics, you know, education, national standards for reading. These are all tied back to these ideas that we can gather data, use the data to inform policy decisions, and then mm -hmm. pursue policy goals along those lines. And so the, the question becomes like, uh, as soon as you disagree with the messaging or the, the desire of it all, um, you start to see it as almost conspiratorial. If you do agree with it, you know, you, you see it as like, well, this is actually probably good to tell parents not to feed their kids popsicles. That's probably a fine thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we have this aversion to it because we have this, what I would call a romantic reaction of individual, like I'm not a number, I'm, I'm a human being with a free will and I can make choices. For but sure. we also accept the fact that we live in society and we have to live with one another. And that's a fundamental tension that we're dealing with. Okay. 
So where do you come down on that? If I, I sent my kid to a school today, actually a private school, but it went to a public school where they're mm-hmm. very likely, I know for a fact, one of the things that they do is read three different articles that have, they're about the same subject, but have different viewpoints on it and try to parse out what's, what's fact and what's opinion. To me, that's teaching critical thinking in its purest form. I'm beyond comfortable with that. I'm, I'm, I'm glad right. that his school is, even though I don't really know his teacher personally, I met her once or twice. She seems pretty nice. Is that, am I, am I a sheeple that I'm okay with that? <laughs> I don't think so at all. No, okay. Okay. No. So then, so then we're all okay with it, with an amount of social engineering in theory, yeah. in practice, nobody's debating the ways in which it's gone wrong. Here's, um, uh, part two of, of, of my, uh, my take on, on this. And it's kind of a two part question in and of itself mm-hmm. in your informed opinion, Ken, the general, I, okay, I remember uh, Geraldine Ferraro ran for vice president in the yeah. States in 84. And, and yep. I remember seeing, I was watching a thing with my dad and they said, can, uh, can a politician be successful telling the truth? And this was after her career was effectively over so she could speak, mm. hopefully truthfully. And she said, the answers to questions are so complicated, they would evade most people. And sometimes even when you tell the truth, you have to dumb it down so much yeah. that what you're actually conveying may essentially no longer be the reality of the thing. But yes, in her opinion, in in her very informed opinion, that was a necessary part of the American political system, a functional democracy. Do you think the general, the the electorate can be trusted to just, here's all the information, have Mm -hmm. at it, libraries over there, there's Twitter, to um, evaluate nuanced multifaceted problems and competing theories as to how we address them and collectively come up with the best possible solution. I think in the absence of entire industries meant to shape and manipulate our opinion, maybe, Mm -hmm. but let's look at, you know, it's not just that there are libraries sitting around and people can go to them. There are whole hosts of people who pop up and sell you all sorts of different ideas whether they're entertaining ideas like don't go to the library play this game sure or don't read that book read this book because it's going to tell you the truth about what's actually really going on um or you know why are you going to the library and getting these free books that that's that's what poor people do you need to buy things and consume you know we've got industries that go back to the same period i was talking about earlier that see the control of large segments of society is a, a inherent good the shaping and driving of them to various ideas as an inherent good and they set themselves up as people who are for hire so public relations firms political consultancies and so on so in the absence of all that maybe but we don't live in that world we don't live in a world where people just go to the library we live in a world where there's everywhere you look there's a message trying to kind of push you and nudge you in these different directions. Mm-hmm. So that kind of leads me to part two of the question um, in again, understanding that ours is not a perfect world and nobody is a perfect person. And even well-intentioned people can, can do evil without maybe even knowing that they're doing it or intending to. Um, if we accept that um, nefarious actors are going to put their finger on the scale to try to tip people towards what those actors know would be bad outcomes or just simply chaos itself. Um, 
should we not want well-intentioned elites to at least try to put their finger on the scale in the opposite direction isn't that the less bad thing to happen in the reality in which we live yeah that is the promise of all of these Mm -hmm. social engineers whether they be that of the hacker variety whom we haven't really talked about yet no we'll get there yeah yeah or the early public relations council so ivy lee for example one of the founding figures in public relations said you know, about whatever business he's hired uh, to represent, he'll say, you know, there's a pile of facts about this business. Some of them are bad. I'm here to accentuate the good ones. And so when you have a vision of communication, this is something we talk about in the conclusion of the book, a vision of communication where it's about basically winning over people, getting your message through basically what theorists of communication call the science of coercion, kind of shaping people. If you have that vision, then you need the good guys to do that work to stave off the bad guys. And all that does, and for Sean and I, all that does is basically overstate the importance of this kind of communication. To go back to your question about the library, the way you couched the question was very much based on individual preferences. You know, here's a pile of information, you individual actor, read through it and then come to an informed conclusion. What if we think about communication as more communal practice, like the name implies? What do we think about people getting together and figuring out what is best for society instead of thinking about it as an individual act of, you know, absorbing information and then making an informed choice? It's really more about our talking to each other, our teaching children, our having public debates about these things. But so much of our communication infrastructure right now is really given over to the the former form, the form of I need to get my message through and shape how you think. And if we invest ourselves in that perception of communication, then yes, we need the good guys with the good message guns to fight off the bad guys with the bad message guns. Well said. Okay. So let's talk about the present of social engineering. And I think um, just one way to, 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 get into that efficiently is just to go through the subtitle of, of your book. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what do you mean when you use the term crowdmaster? Yeah, crowdmaster, that goes back to those early 20th century propagandists. And so mm-hmm. there, if you go back to the early 20th century, particularly in America, you see an incredible amount of anxiety over masses of people. So we see, you know, growing populations in urban centers. We see a lot of immigration, particularly from Europe and there were these visions of, you know, people as not being American or even not being white, even if they're coming from Europe. And then, of course, there's racism in America, the, mi- the great migration of, of blacks from the American South to the North to work in industrial centers. So add all that up and you get this big anxiety about the crowd, the mass, and what will it do? And you toss in emerging theories about socialism and communism, you know the masses rising up and throwing off the industrial masters or the, the, the leaders of a country. And so you have this vision that we need to master these crowds. And that's where the mass communication propagandists come into play and say, look, we've got these crowds. We know through our scientific study of how crowds work, how to control them, shape them and drive them towards uh, positive ends. And really the positive ends tend to be defined by whomever is paying for these. So, for example, with in- increased industrialization in America, we get piles of consumer goods, but we also have a culture where people aren't necessarily buying new things because why do you need the new thing? Your old thing works just fine. So, you have 
a whole industry of advertising basically selling you need to buy the latest thing you need to buy the you know throw out that old car that's three years old it's it's out of date buy this new one um, and that greases the wheels for industrial production and consumption and it creates that trashing system that Sean and I talk about where things get thrown away so the crowd master in short is just mm-hmm. here's this mass I promise to be able to shape this mass towards whatever ends and then uh, freaks with the pH yeah the foam freaks so these are folks that emerge in the 1960s they're super fascinating um, Phone freaks are people who are fascinated by the telephone system. I'm kind of curious because you mentioned your father worked for the Bell system. Mm-hmm. Um, but people looked at the Bell system as this, it was amazing technological feat. This network that was globe spanning, you can pick up a phone and in theory call around the world. A lot of people were fans of it and wanted to explore it. And so they would do kind of like what people do on the internet now, you know, browsing through the internet. They pick up the phone and see how far they could call with it. And they found a variety of techniques to do that. There are various ways that they can manipulate tones. The 2600 uh, hertz tone is one example. Or they can manipulate uh, pay phones by emulating the sounds of coins clinking down through the pay phone. And, right. Yeah. 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 They could do all these cool things like um, conference calls with a bunch of buddies, which would be prohibitively expensive, or long distance calls, or calling themselves from one pay phone to another, linking uh, uh, switches all around the world. Uh, so these are folks who are really important to the book because they figured out that one of the easiest ways to manipulate the phone co- system was not to uh, physically or mechanically manipulate it. It was to call up an operator and say, hey, I'm up on this telephone pole fixing a line. I need access to this special test line. And the operator who believed that that person was actually a fellow telco employee would say, okay, here's the special test line. You get access to it and then you can do all sorts of cool stuff like listen in on other, other people's calls or do long distance calling. So they discovered that social manipulation was a way to get to technical manipulation. I see. Yeah, I don't think my dad had anything to do with anything remotely <laughs> as cool as, as that. Uh, let's talk about um, trolls, um, the, the role they play, and I guess how... How pervasive have they been? Are they currently and are they likely to be? Once again, I'm just going to be a contrarian here. As soon as mm-hmm. everybody gets, as soon as everybody gets hysterical about stuff, I just go, well, yeah. just hold on. Let's just, yeah. I can ask the question. I remember reading at one point, well, there was 75 million pieces of Russian propaganda on right. Facebook during the, the 2016 election. That means, that means statistically everybody saw it. And I'm like, okay, yeah. well, statistically everybody heard about 37,000 messages of every variety during the election, how much different, if if 0.1% of what they heard was from a Russian troll, even if it was a really, really good one, and boy, I I love playing the game, I'm I'm sure you're a past master at it, of when you see the tweet that goes viral about, can you believe what that size said now, and I'm like... Is that really a guy in Kentucky? Because that's so irritating. I really believe somebody's chest bumping in in a, around cubicles right. somewhere in Russia right now because that is such a stereotype of the exact kind of person that pisses off the other side. So yeah, 85 million pieces. That's a lot of pieces. But to me, 
I am inclined to agree with, you know, I root for one team, but I'll give the other team this one. I think it probably was a drop in the bucket. Now, that's not getting into the the hacking of uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. That's a whole other level. Yeah. But yeah. the actual, uh, uh, how, yeah, basically. And then we hear, well, what with AI, and it could be 99% of what you hear, not 1% of right. what you hear. How bad was it? How bad is it? How, how bad is it likely to be? Yeah, there's a lot there. So. Sure. One, there's uh, the existence of these organizations like the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, which would be full of what people would characterize as trolls, Internet trolls, going into forums and spouting off whatever, you know, whatever different positions, uh, manipulating Twitter bots or Twitter profiles or Instagram profiles, what have you. Um, the existence of those, uh, I don't think is disputable. Like every election, we see the rise of a bunch of bot accounts or a bunch of, you know, uh, fake messages. We're seeing that with two wars, you know, the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel and Gaza. Um, your question, though, your skepticism is shared by a lot of people. Like, how effective could this possibly be? And that's so hard to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, the vision of we can control the masses through communication is a really attractive idea. The actual imp implementation of it is so much harder to analyze. Uh, it's hard to prove media effects. It may be impossible to improve, improve media effects. So what is going on here? I, one of the lessons we draw in the book is if you look at a hacker social engineer, so the, the kind of the heirs to the freaks, the people who they might call you up on the phone and ask for, pretend to be a fellow employee and ask for a password, or they might show up and say, I'm with IT support and, you know, let me have access to your computer. Like those folks, the, the Kevin Mitnick types of the world, they would use a variety of techniques to get to their goal. They had a goal and they would use whatever techniques they could. So if we look at something like Russian interference in democratic deliberation, trolls are going to be part of it. Hacking people's computers is going to be part of it. Uh, Old school, real politics is going to be part of it. You know, making a speech, you know, talking about uh, geopolitics. Diplomacy is going to be part of it. So the trolls are part of a larger picture of attempting to, you know, expand the interests of a particular nation state. And I'm talking about Russia here. I could easily be talking about the U.S. The U.S. does the same thing. The U.S. has... Uh, uses social media manipulative techniques around the world. They use propaganda around the world. They use diplomacy around the world. This is a fact of nation uh, nations these days. Do we have a bunch of trolls that are writing a bunch of stuff on Pakistani Facebook? Oh, yeah. Oh, for real? Uh, yeah, if you go back to... So there, there's this it's a really interesting moment. I talk about it in my first book, and, and Sean talks about this a lot. Um, back in 2010, the U.S. Air Force put out a call and it leaked. It was not meant to be public. It was a call for what they call persona management. And the basic idea here was, was a command and control system so that one operator working for the Air Force could control like 10 social media accounts in a various, various settings. You think about the context of the time. It's Afghanistan or Iraq, but it could be anywhere in the world. And these would allow relatively automated control of social media profiles to try and shape local discourse on whatever. So, yes, absolutely. So you mentioned Israel, Palestine, and obviously Russia, Ukraine. Let's bring this into the real world. Um, you know, I, I just try to be humble enough 
to know how much I don't know. And mm-hmm. I, I, I find even with people to whom my, my politics and worldview are very, very sympathetic when I know that somebody is primarily getting, and I'm just picking one example, I could pick a million, but primarily getting their information about how well, how screwed is Putin right now from CNN? Right. I, I can't really take your opinion all that seriously. And it doesn't even, there's always the combination of how much is this, you know, some evil, um, you know, puppet master trying to convince me of, of something. And how much of it is simply I'm going to tell you the story that you want to hear. Because yes. that's sort of my, the, the whole thing is to make you keep coming to me and not realize that I give you just enough bad news that you don't realize you're coming to me for it. I mean, to me, I, I bring it up all the time, but. I started uh, uh, as a left-leaning person. I started going to the Drudge Report uh, somewhere during Trump's presidency because I was like, if they say it's bad for him, it's really bad for him. <laughs> I wanted to see this. And then some this weird, weird, and to this point, I, I look it up from time to time, there's been this crazy, I mean, Drift doesn't even describe it anymore. The Drudge Report is essentially, uh, uh, it's, it's. I still go, but it's just that the thrill is gone because I know they're going to tell me. Now they're trying to tell me that like Kamala Harris has great style or it's, it's mm-hmm. like, it's 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 crazy how how uh, how how left leaning that is gone. My question is this: If you're John Q. Public and you're just like, "Hey, I'd kind of like to know who's right and wrong in Israel Palestine right now," I understand it's not it's a complicated question, but I kind of want to know who's right or wrong. How would I go about trying to do that? And if I merely if I don't, if I don't go out and seek my sources, I let the news come to me. However, it comes to me talking to friends, looking at Facebook, whatever. Just how misinformed am I? And then just to, to pick that one example, because there's there's obviously so much misinformation flying around there. Anybody who takes anything at face value is 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 deluded at best. Yeah, that's a really tough question. Um, I do think there's a a distinction between television news and print media. I think uh, the structure and rhythm of television news is, you know, five minutes and then something explosive and we'll be right back after the break. And it's just kind of a stringing you along system. And the purpose there is pretty obvious to keep your eyes on and keep you somehow stimulated, whether it's angry or excited and sit through the commercials. Right. Um, so I tend to prefer print media myself. Um, and I would say, you know, let's go to respected journalist outlets, you know, New York Times or Washington Post, what have you, you know, and then somebody can immediately come back at me and say, well, you know, the New York Times was reporting on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in 2003. So and they got that wrong. Right. Um, and then you're invoking something as deeply complicated as Israel, Gaza, um, Israel, Palestine. Um, yeah, I don't have a really good example or or answer to this. Um, I think we, I think we need time and -hmm. I don't think we're really afforded that. Uh, we need time to listen to people, talk to other people, learn from other people. We need to also not speak so much, but the contemporary media environment really demands that we speak. Um, one of the things that struck me about, um, October 7th and beyond in Israel is the need to make statements. All of a sudden you see all these organizations popping up and making statements. Like, why do you need to speak? Let's figure out what's going on. But there's this desire to post your hot take, get online, post the next thing, get more likes and so on and so on. 
And so one of the things that I think is removed from our ability to gather information is time and time to think and time to not speak and time to listen. So um, I guess as a college professor, I'd say take some classes. <laughs> That's right. somewhat self-serving, but uh, it is kind of in line with what I'm saying, which is, you know, spending the time studying history, studying from multiple perspectives is going to be better uh, for you than the latest hot take. Sure. All of those statements, I was at a sporting event where they took their political stand about the most recent, you know, atrocity in the world. And my wife and I were discussing, well, why would they do this? And I'm inclined to believe that everything is, 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 it's just like a CYA. It's a cover your ass kind of thing. It's how many people will get angry if we speak in support of or in defense of blah, blah, yeah. blah. And how many people will we hear from if we are silent on the divisive yeah. issue of, and they, and, and most of them have collectively come to the, um, to the conclusion, I, I don't think the Clippers actually, the Los Angeles Clippers basketball team, I don't think any members of the team care all that deeply. I could be wrong. I've never met yeah, them. Yeah, some you of know. them might. Yeah. I mean, they might. They might. They might. Yeah. I take that back. Maybe they do. Maybe Bones Highland cares very deeply about what's right. going on in the Middle East right now. But I just think that the team is just like, we're going to get all, we're, we, we, what's the, what's the, the, the most likely path to something blowing up in our face in this scenario is we were silent on this thing that affected so many members of our community. So have the guy say the thing, and then let's try to put this behind us as quickly as, as possible. Mm -hmm. um, I Another piece of information I picked up somewhere along the way, it's probably not true, but I keep repeating it anyway. Um, uh, it kind of touches on, on, on something you were talking about a minute ago. I, I heard somewhere along the way, that you're saying, you know, we, we, we need time to have perspective. We need to let things sink in. But obviously we live in, in a world that feeds on, um, you know, everyone being in a, a state of mild hysteria all the time. Supposedly, the, the initially, the printing press was like really bad for society because ev everybody had the ability to read, but nobody had the ability to read critically. And all of a sudden anybody could hand them a pamphlet. And as long as it had the right inflammatory language or caricature photo, that would be, that would become that that person's marching orders for the day, politically, socially, what have you. And that there was just this period of time, which unfortunately I think lasted a couple of centuries between when, you know, printing people, people were able in a mass way to get their hands on printed objects. And when they were able to sort of kind of make sense of it, or I must say the powers that be were able to create a power structure that said, Hey, if everybody's going to be reading this stuff, let's try to get some control over what people read and what's in it. That's certainly a part of this. It seems to me that we are entering into a new dark age where there is just this wild dissemination of information that mirrors the beginning of people literally running around town hot to the town square hot off the presses here's my read this thing read that thing and uh and unfortunately there's even the information's even more readily accessible there's even more of it it's perhaps well it's not more inflammatory i know if you go back the the papers are pretty inflammatory from from the yeah. jump but there it leads me to the conclusion, which my gut agrees with, that we are not going to figure this out right now, and this is going yeah. to get bad. This is going to get worse before it gets... It will get better, but we won't be here for that. Yeah. Do you ag agree or disagree? Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, we're dealing with you know, 30 years of history, which is a blink of the eye, and we're building new technologies that can pump out images and video and text at an alarming rate and they look pretty real 
Um, and we have this culture, as I mentioned, of, of speed and having to react constantly. And um, to circle back to where we started, this is why I got interested in people who are building those alternative social media systems because they're building systems that didn't have things like behavioral advertising in them, which is one of the key problems I see is like the idea that all of our information needs to be known and then sold back to us in the form of commodities that we must like. Um, if you go back or if you go to the alternative systems that I'm interested in, uh, people report to me that effectively they feel like less pressure and less anxiety when compared to something like Twitter. So in, in a Twitter space, people felt like they had to you know, comment and see how many likes they got and they had to keep doing, keep looking, keep looking. And these alternative systems that don't use behavioral advertising or have a different structure, they feel less anxiety. They might post once or twice. They might walk away for a week and come back. They go out and live in the world and they report a lot more calmness. So maybe that sort of uh, analysis of these structures of communication and the systems that we have is, is what we need. And we need to keep experimenting. We can't accept that the system is the way it is. But as you say, uh, in all that experimentation, there's going to be some horrible stuff that happens and some wonderful stuff that happens. And we have to hope that we arc, bend the arc of history, as it were, towards the good communicative practices. And there's no guarantees. It takes activism and work and, and struggle and people standing up for uh, what they believe to be right uh, in order for that to work. So then in conclusion to people who are listening to this concretely, uh, it, like today, right now, if you could impart one piece of advice, one one marching order uh, to somebody to try to correct course a little bit in their little corner of the universe, what do you think that would be? I'd say listen more. Uh, listen to others. Listen to people who don't look like you. Listen to people who... Um, you know, it's a little dangerous to suggest this to listen to people you disagree with because there's, um, again, there's this culture of like domination, like owning the libs or what have you. Um, there are trollish people who only delight in chaos, but find among people, including people you disagree with, uh, voices to listen to and listen to them uh, before you speak. Uh, that would be the biggest thing I would ask for. I wasn't expecting you to say that, and and I'm glad you did. That's great. Uh, so so let's uh, let's leave off there. My guest has been Robert Gale, along with his colleague Sean Lawson. He is co-author of Social Engineering, available wherever you buy books, and uh, and posted free and open to the public at the MIT website. Thank you so much for your time and your insight, Robert. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. <laughs>